Ten commandments begin as follows. Now, the whole subject of the Aseros Adibros is a very challenging one. Um, I don't know how much we're going to really cover the overarching thing. We're going to get into one important part of it is in the beginning. But in the old days, it was a custom some people had to say the Ten Commandments as part of davening. And they had to cut it out. Because there were groups in the world at the time, maybe the early Christians and others. Welcome, come on in. We're just beginning. We start, right? You're exactly on time. I mean, a bunch of other people came early. They were bugging. You know, let's start. Welcome. Okay, so so they used to say, some people used to say the Ten Commandments every day during prayers, back in Talmudic times, and they outlawed it because there was a danger of this be supplanting the rest of the mitzvahs. You see, the Ten Commandments are no more important than the other mitzvahs. There's no halacha, for example. right? For, in other words, we have three mitzvahs that are more important than other mitzvahs. So we will give our life to not kill somebody or to not worship idols or to not commit adultery. And those happen to be connected. right? Parts of those prohibitions are in the Ten Commandments. But there's no halacha that one mitzvah in the Ten Commandments is more important than another in the Torah. So what is it? It's a good question. Like, what is it then? What's the point of it, right? Um, but they couldn't even say them every day anymore because there was a danger, and there are religions. I mean, the Christians are very into the Ten Commandments for some reason. A religious Christian, a committed Christian, um, doesn't work on the Sabbath. Now, they don't know what work means, and they don't know what day the Sabbath is. Right, but they they don't. In other words, they follow what it says. They believe that you got to do that. Now, why they don't eat kosher food is an absolute mystery, but it really stems from belief that the Ten Commandments are more important. God sent the Ten Commandments, and the other mitzvahs were for a time. Okay, so we have to understand them. What are they? If they're not more important, so how come God gave those? Yes. Then what? What did He come to? And on on these beautiful tablets that are described as a piece of God's throne. Now, God doesn't have a body and he doesn't sit on a physical throne. But, right, so, but in some sophisticated way, we're supposed to understand that God has a throne. So, well, maybe we'll explain that idea for a moment and how this is carved from God's throne and what these ten are, and then we're going to get into it. So, for Hashem to have a kisei, but without a body... What could that mean? What is he sitting on, right? So, as I understand it in a very straightforward way, the throne of God would mean this, that you have the divine and the abstract. Every one of us lives in basically two realities. We have, as far as our mind can reach, and like lofty, great ideas that speak to us, that don't speak to you know. And then there's like, can you actually bring that down to rest in this physical world in any meaningful way? Because if not, it's very beautiful that you have dreams of world peace. Whenever I see somebody with a bumper sticker that's advocating, you know, world peace, you know, save the whales. So one of the first things I do is honk at them. And they usually display one of their fingers proudly. You understand? <laughs> like, world peace. But if a guy honks at you, you can't even be peaceful, right? These people, you know, it's, it's a fascinating thing. So I don't, I don't always try to provoke everybody who speaks about world peace. But it's very easy to love everyone in the world, but except for the guy sitting next to you on the bus who smells like a, a tuna fish sandwich, and you can't stand that guy, right? So that, and this is like a really important thing, meaning to take Hashem and assume that he rests on something. There's something that supports him. There's something where he can touch this world. Hashemayim kisi, the heaven is my chair. The ha'aretz hadom ragli, and the earth is my footstool. In other words, Hashem says, I can rest on a combination between your lofty ideas and your physical world. Um, so the idea that we could take a piece of that, we could take a piece of the abstract wisdom from heaven, so to speak, and bring it into our world to be a guide for life is going to be the very defining idea of the giving of the Torah. Moshe comes up to receive the Torah, and the angels say, you don't deserve the Torah. Remember, what is an angel, right? What are all these very sophisticated ideas? Um, Moshe, his job, is to show us and to show himself and to show the world that the Torah belongs in this world. Everybody knows that the Torah is good for angels. Everybody knows. In fact, entire systems of thought are built on the understanding that you cannot bring Torah into this world. Original sin made that impossible, and you can just go either to heaven or hell by the grace of whatever's going on in heaven. Isn't that something? So this is a very powerful idea. 
And we say no. The Torah belongs on earth. Please come in. Welcome. Come on in. Thank you so much. Have a good night, guys. Oh, you could keep the case? You don't want it. Okay. Okay. So the luchos are something that comes from hashamayim kisi. The heaven is my chair. You know, lofty ideas really belong in, in heaven. No, no. They can be taken and brought down to this world, and they can contain wisdom that we can read and we can absorb. So I want you to know the Ten Commandments are going to be the basis for everything. But they're not more important than everything. They just are ten principles So the, that, that include the 613 mitzvahs. The Ramban has an essay called Torah Sashem Tamimu, where he goes through showing how each of the ten commandments, if you break them up into general ideas, they're going to include everything. Um, the Reb Sajagon has the same thing. It's a, like a fascinating idea. So again, what he doesn't mean to say that a logical person would have figured out the mitzvahs that way. Some of them are a little bit of a stretch. What he means to show is that the principles, these ten principles, are so fundamental in a similar way to Hillel finding the Torah in one principle. So he, Hashem gave us ten general ideas that teach us all different things. And if you imbibe all of those things, so it would teach you to implement it in many ways. For example, a kind person is good both to his wife and his children. So that's two different, completely different applications of the same thing. Um, but if you'd learn kindness properly, you'd learn how to deal with your neighbors, your friends, right? Your superiors and your um, inferiors? No. And your subordinates? I don't know. Okay, right? You understand? In other words, you would learn the basic principles. You could extrapolate everything. Most of us are not really wise enough to do that. So we have the whole Torah. But these ten principles include everything. So the first, the first thing is it's like an unbelievable thing. I mean, we're going to focus basically on the first two commandments. In a slightly a different way, it's even going to tie in nicely. I don't, is anyone? A couple of people here were in Shul on Shabbos morning, um, so it's going to tie in a little bit to what we spoke about there as well. I may like to do that sometimes, but you don't have to have been there. And if you were there, it's not going to bore you to death. So, okay. So listen to this. I am the Lord. Listen to the first commandment. It's a commandment. Now, the first thing I have to tell you is that there's a disagreement how to count the commandments. It's not clear among the commentaries how to count the commandments. So you'll go into a shul somewhere and they'll say there's one way of Judaism. And it's called Rav Kook. And it's called Satmar. And it's called... There's nothing in Judaism that's simple. There's not even... You can, we can't even agree on what the Aseris HaDibus are. So don't tell me that there's one approach. So it's ridiculous. You understand? You're going to come in and everybody tells you this is, this is the only way. And anybody who doesn't agree with me should be put in the... The comfy chair, right? Well, that's the Monty Python, right? In other words, they should be, uh, you know, tied to the rack. How many ways do we have of bringing Isn't that something? I mean, I was recently learning a piece of Chaim Palaj. I think it was last year, this parish, maybe or Veschanan or something. And, and he counts them differently. I mean, he counts them differently. And the Mepharshim count them differently. There's, there's a number of ways. I, I haven't gone back to do like a thorough... Maybe I'll, do, maybe I'll do that this Shabbos this year, you know, trying to see what we can come up with this. But just that principle. One of my rabbis in Israel used to always say this. It's like there's nothing, but you know what? It's not a cop-out. Like it's not because they couldn't get it right. Nothing in life is simple. And everything depends on your perspective. And if you're looking for simple answers, right, maybe Baha'i has them. You understand? <laughs> like we can send you to some lovely people who are offering completely different solutions. Atheism is a really simple answer. Right? But if you're looking for something intricate and complex that you're going to bat, you may see the Ten Commandments differently every year for the rest of your life, and you won't be out of line. So this is a very inspiring thing to somebody who's excited about the ride of Judaism, um, and it's a very distressing thing to another group of people. Um, as a rabbi, there's basically two kinds of people that I, I come into contact with um, that are looking for a rabbi. One kind of person, this is really something, one kind of person wants you to tell them if they should get married or not to that person or not. Rabbi, tell me what to do. Should I make my flight home at 3.30? Or should I stay in yeshiva till the end of the Seder and take the one o'clock flight? So you say, well, what are the pros and cons? Well, and they go back and forth. So Rabbi, what do I do? Right? That's one sort of person. Um, so I refuse. I always get in trouble with those people because I won't tell them. I say, what do you think? Oh, so it sounds like you think the best idea is this. No. Okay, so it sounds like... Because people are trying to trick you. 
And I had a conversation with a kid this week in Israel who I'm in touch with, and he told me he wants to move to a place that's just totally ridiculous to move. Like, he's learning Torah seriously. He's happy. He's productive. And now I want to go over here and do this kind of a business. I'm like, what? Why do you want to go to Uzbekistan? And, and Like, what are you talking about, right? So I asked him, why do you want to do this? You know what he tells me? Well, my Rebbe told me to. <coughs> Interesting. Why did he tell you to do that? Well, because I told him that if, if I don't move there, I'm going to be miserable and probably die because I'm so sad. And that's the only way I could be happy is moving to this, right? You hear this? You can paint a question however you want and get someone else to take responsibility. And what some people want in religion is to let go and then have the roller coaster take you up for Yom Kippur and down for Tisha B'Av and around. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. And around and up and down. You understand what I'm saying to you? That some people want to let go of everything and make no decisions. And whether it's, really, whether it's the tzaddik telling you, marry this one, and this is the job you take, and, you, and you'll never have to worry again the rest of your life. So I don't buy that so much. That was not the approach that we were taught. We were taught in yeshiva that you ask advice from a wise Torah scholar because, because they can really help you put things in perspective. They have insight. But at the end of the day, it's your responsibility. You're going to have to choose who you marry and what job you take. And, what, and that's why the mitzvahs in the Torah are so detailed, and yet they tell you almost nothing of substance. In other words, they tell you all these things, but it's all like the window dressing. Who should you marry is a major question. There's like nowhere to even, where do you even look? Where should you live? What should you do? Right? And it's like, it doesn't even start. So this is like the most basic idea that I want to share with you. The Ten Commandments, right? We don't even know what they are. And every time we sit down, there's different mafarshim and different things. And I have a masora like this. Very nice. Maybe your kid has a masora the other way and you have to live in the same house with him. You understand? Who says? So the first commandment is not even really a commandment, right? Listen, does anybody have an explanation for me? The first commandment is, I am the Lord your God who took you out of Egypt in the house of slaves. Believe in God. Okay, so that's an intelligent well, I'm think, thing. I'm thinking it's like a... It doesn't like say, right, in other words, I, I think the Catholics say, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me, is the first one, right? That makes sense, because they're asking the question. How could you say, Anochi Hashem Elokecha is a, is, a, is a mitzvah? It's a statement. So you would say, it means believe that I am Hashem. I can accept that. But I have a problem with it. Because why do we listen to the Torah? Because Hashem said so. What if you don't think Hashem said so? Are you going to listen? No. Okay, here's the first commandment. I am the Lord your God. Believe that. Well, one minute. <coughs> if I'm going to listen to this, I already believed that before I started reading this Pasuk. And if I didn't, then how is that convincing? Why do you believe in God? There's no God. No, it says so in the book written by God. No, no, there's no God. No, but it says that there is. You understand? Why would anybody do because of Anochi? What kind of mitzvah is that? To the point that some say it's not a mitzvah. Aseris Hadibros doesn't mean the ten mitzvahs. It's not a dibra? It's a a dibra. A dibra is a statement, the ten statements. Some say it's not a mitzvah of the 613. Right. Good. Good. So what are you saying? That maybe it's not believe in me that I am Hashem, but believe in me that I am Hashem that saved you. Powerful. That's a good answer. That's a very compelling thing. In other words, maybe this mitzvah is not just the basic belief in God. It's a sophisticated belief in God that even if you know there's a God, there's a lot of work left to do. You cannot accept that 15 years old in summer camp God into your heart and think that you're done. Do <laughs> you hear this, what's happening? I mean, I'm, I'm hitting the same point a few times. Right. But you're not done. And one of the most distressing things you will ever find are communities of people who are done. I finished. I've grown. I'm finished. Coming to a shul and nobody's growing. This is how I dominate. This is what time I show up. This is everything I do. This is my level of observance. This is my level of learning. This is everything. And they're not thriving. Their Judaism is not exciting. They're not going to try something new. Oh, there's a new custom for this holiday that I didn't know about? Fantastic. I grew up, I was privileged to grow up in a home and a community where everybody was growing. It was a group of Bali and Everybody was, was relatively fresh. And so it was a very exciting thing. People were growing and discovering new things and new mitzvahs. And this person, you look over at someone in Shul, two years ago, they didn't look anything like that. That shouldn't be the place for Bali Chuba. That should be true in every show. Um, so you'll often find, when I was living in Jerusalem, so I taught for a group called Hineni. 
So uh, Hineni, Rebbitz oh, and Esther Jungreis. So we had like a Monday night class in Nachla. Oh, there we are. So I noticed like a fascinating thing. And it was that oftentimes when people, this was a group of people who had made Aliyah. And so making Aliyah is like a major step. It requires in most people, you know, putting a lot of things behind and perhaps even disappointing family. Like there's a great deal of, of, of hard work and money and energy that goes into it. So I noticed a really interesting thing. And that is that when people did a great thing, they often then felt like they had arrived. So one time I had a really interesting conversation with a fellow. I said to him, like, so what's your plan for this year? Like, what are you working on growing at? What topic are you working on? What are you doing? <coughs> so, so you know what he said? He said, what you, how could you ask me that? How could you ask me that? I sold my dental practice. I made Aliyah. How could you ask me? What am I doing to grow? So I quickly apologized. He said, like, I really didn't mean to suggest that you're not like a really sophisticated, observant Jew. I didn't. I just meant, like, you know, what's your plan for this year? Are you learning something new? Are you? So the answer is, we all have this. We achieve something real, and then we think we made it. So that's why it says the first mitzvah the Jews got was Hachodesh Hazelachem. Right? Count by the new moon. Every month is a new month. So what does it mean? It means, you know what happens when slaves are freed? Good, sweet heavens. When slaves are freed, glad you're here. When slaves are freed, and you've achieved what you were trying to achieve. So one of the first feelings you might have is we made it. We got to relax. Says the Torah, there are no such thing as ends. There are only beginnings. So you don't end being single. You begin being married. You don't end being slaves. You begin being free. The first myth has got to be it's fresh. After, you know, apartheid or apartheid, they're both valid pronunciations. I've just mentioned it before and gotten corrected no matter which way I say it. Um, so, you know, there was a big challenge of people that had been fighting their whole lives to end injustice. You got it, now what? Now what? It was a big challenge. Crime. People were left with nothing to do. You have people that are fighting for slaves. You know, we're, we're slaves. You want to be free. You want to be free. Now there's no paro. Now what? You know, it's new. It's fresh. There's always something new. There's always something new to change and to do. Anochi Hashem Elokecha, the first commandment is telling you, you think you know God? Here there's a mitzvah to believe in God. That mitzvah can only mean that you don't believe in him enough yet. You don't understand him well enough yet. Life is an experience of discovering further and further. I just want to like give you an, an, an example of the emotion that this is supposed to illustrate. Imagine beginning your Torah journey with the following. I'll tell you a story. Rabbi Beryl Wine has a story. It goes like this. He's a little boy in Chicago. So he went to Chicago Midway Airport with every child and every rabbi in Chicago to meet Rabbi Yitzchak Isaac Halevi Herzog, who was the chief rabbi in Israel. Big tzaddik. Rabbi of Yashe, like a big, you know, a very important personality. And it was post-World War II. He comes to Chicago. And they all came to meet him, you know, on the tarmac. You know, he'd come off the steps on the plane. And then he came to one of the local, one of the yeshivas to deliver an address. So Rabbi Wein says he was maybe 12 years old, but he remembers everything he said. It was in Yiddish. It was complicated. But, like, he was fixated on this. You know, this is a great rabbi coming. And, and then after the speech, he stopped talking, and he was very quiet. And he said, you know, I just got back from the Vatican where I met with Pope Pius XII, and I asked him to return the thousands of Jewish babies who were adopted and cared for by Christians, by Catholics, during the war. He said, the Pope told me. He flatly refused. He said, now that they've been baptized, they're Christians. You may not have them back. Please see this man out. And then he broke down in sobs. And then he looked up at this room full of people and he said, those children are gone. Those children are gone. But what are you going to do to rebuild the Jewish people? He said afterwards, as people filed by him, everybody filed by to shake his hand. So he said when he came to him, he said to him and the other children, he held his hand and he looked him in the eye and he said, did you understand what I said before? What are you going to do to help the Jewish people? So he said in his rabbinic career, 
there were many times that he was very distressed and he felt just like quitting. He had enough. And he said he always would hear those words. Like he would remember all these people were lost and all these children and everything, you know. Like, but you're here. Are you going to contribute? So I really believe that that emotion, which is like a very powerful thing, there's a lot of good to do in the world. You cannot be content. Apathetic. You don't care. Rabbi Mbati Berger in Eshatar is privileged to teach alongside Rabbi Berger in Eshatar in the old city. So he once told me there was a boy, let's call him Joe, yeah, because his name was Joe and he had blonde hair. And <laughs> he, was, he would sit and smile in front of the class. I was teaching in a, a program called Essentials which is like very beginning. It's after someone might do the discovery seminar, join the issue. You want to learn about prayer, basically. So I was teaching essentials. This guy, Joe, comes in, sits down, and for a week or so, two, three, four, he's like just smiling, taking notes. Anything you say, he just smiles and like he's got it. He's got good questions, but he's never challenging. So I burger so I was like, I, I'm not happy with this Joe guy. I said, what? He's like, oh, he's too nice. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? He says, you know, it's only when they give you a really hard time. It's only when they give you a really hard time that they stick around. So when it's all nice and it's all easy, they tell the story about the Kutsk Rebbe also. One more story. He was looking for a place. The Rebbe of Kutsk was not yet the Rebbe of Kutsk. He was looking for a city to establish his cloyce. So he's going around and he says, ah, he goes from town to town and everything is friendly. He comes to Kutsk and they chased him out with stones and sticks. No chassidim here. So he said, I'm moving here. I'm moving here. So they said, what are you? Have you lost your... I mean, we know Hasidish Rebbe's are so prone to do things that you wouldn't expect and then later have a shot, you know? But what on earth is going on here? So he says, you don't understand. They're not apathetic. That's where I want to live. They believe in something. They have a pulse. So if I can convince them of the truth, then they'll come over to my side. There's hope. When someone, oh, everything's good, everything's good, that's useless. The Jews are a stiff-necked people. They're really tough. So, but you know what? Like when you get a tough person on your side, that is a good ally to have. That's a good chassid to have. And so the Kotzke Rebbe says, I want to have a group of people that are not easy to win over. You know, it's not easy. It's not easy to truly believe in God, to truly make your life decisions about God. What job should I take really about Hashem? Should I self-aggrandize or not? Really about every decision? Is it really about Hashem? Should I marry this person or not? Is it really about what's right and the ultimate source of good and evil and truth and falsehood? Is that what I'm living for? That's what we're supposed to be living for. That's going to take every decision of your life and every day of your life evolves. And you could pray the same words every day of your life and it totally doesn't get old because you don't even begin to penetrate the meaning of of Baruch Atah Hashem, if you only say it a hundred times a day. I mean, you don't even get the beginning of that. What could that mean? So now listen to the second one. Lo You may have no other gods while I'm around. You can't make an idol, an image of anything in the heaven and earth. You can't batter them or serve them. Here's why. You ready to hear why you can't do all this? Because I am Hashem, your God. El Kano, I am a jealous God. I don't put up with nonsense. Po, yeah, says Rashi. El Kano, Mekane Lifra Liparea, Veeno over al Midaso Limchal Alavona Vodazar. Hashem will be sure to pay back, and He will never let the sin of idolatry go. Person who doesn't do teshuva unrepentant in their worship of idols. Al-Panai means alongside me while I'm around. This doesn't mean to deny God. It just means to accept God and realize. So here's, here's one of the big pushes. Rebitzok Eliolanda has a couple pieces that are, that are helpful for us. There's the Rav in Vilna before the war. One, one thing he, he points out, which many of the Mepharshim explain in many places, and it's really from the Gemaras. And that is that idolaters accepted that there was a first cause and that that was God. But what they believed is that God doesn't have the patience or the interest or the ability to pay attention to mankind. He's infinite. But there's like these intermediaries that are not divine, but they are more powerful than us. They're other powers. And they have control. So they call Hashem Elohah de Elohaya. That he's the God of all gods. They didn't have a problem with that. Um, they had a problem relating to God. It's really hard to relate to a God. This is what we talked about on Shabbos a little bit, how hard it is to relate to a God who's not physical. 
has no personality that we can possibly imagine. We're finite. We're people. So it's really tempting to humanize God, to give some sort of personality. And therefore, to have something else that I can connect to is called Elohim Acherim, other powers. Now listen to what it means. What does it mean, Elohim Acherim? So I just told you it means other powers. It says Rashi, Davar Acher. See, it can't mean, Rashi explains, it can't mean that there are other powers. There is no other power. So what does it mean? So he says either it means other people's gods, the gods of others, or davar acher, Elohim acherim, shehem acherim le'ovdehem. They are strangers to those who worship them. You can call out to them, ve'enam onenosam. A person who thinks Jesus is his best friend is mistaken. But I'll tell you, it's my best friend of the world. He's mistaken. It's a stranger. Because he can't do anything for you. He can't help you. Which tells you, by the way, that what does a friend mean? It means someone who does help you. Someone who you can call out to and does help you. These are acherim, these are strangers. Because you call out to them and they just look at you like they don't know who you are. That's what a false god is. Isn't that something? Why did you choose that false god? You know why you chose that god? Because you wanted to connect to something more real. You know how much easier it is to connect to an image of a god than just an abstract idea? And it actually estranges you because you think you're making friends with them and it doesn't exist. Yeah? Well, if the God doesn't have any power, right? Because nothing can have power in comparison to Hashem, then why is Hashem just jealous? I never understood that. How can you be jealous of something that is worthless? Right. Um, right. You know what? I'm going to read you guys something because I even have it. I have a little arrow next to it. You see that? That's how much I liked it. Um, that's how much I liked it. He says, he quotes the Rashi. This is Rabbi Yitzchak Elielander. So he says, Menimus derech eretz. In the way that civilization works, the way that nimus, you know, culture works. Ein kavod hamelech lekane be'adam bozui. Shafel. Hamevazek vod hamelech. Some schnook in an alley somewhere, rolling around drunk, you know. And another thing, the king can, you know, can go where the... Come on, right? That's going to bother me. It can't bother a king. He says, his, his, listen to this beautiful words. Can a king be jealous or upset at anyone but another king? So his question is, why won't God just let this stuff go? Who cares? He says, no. He says, look at the words of the Pasuk. Anochi Hashem Elokecha Kel Kano. Remember what Anochi Hashem Elokecha meant? That was the first words of the Ten Commandments. What is Anochi Hashem Elokecha? I'm the one who took you out of Egypt. So he explains, God doesn't say I'm the one who made the world. I'm the one who's involved in your life. I care about you. He said it also makes no sense that God could possibly care about anything you do. How could he care about what you do? Yeah, that seems illogical too, but he does. He made us. And that's the whole message of the Torah, is that human action is really valuable. And Hashem is really interested. And when you do a mitzvah, there's details. There were, the rabbis established ways that when you take a shower, you should first shampoo your hair and then wash the rest of your body. Who cares? The answer is, you're important. Is that really the, that's the, really the truth. You don't have to wash your hair. But if you do, you should do that first. Right? You can go back later and do conditioning. You don't have to not wash your hair after. But you should first wash your hair. And then, now, by the way, when I studied hygiene, right, intensively um, in the second grade, right, and they gave stickers and everything. So one thing they told us is to wash your hair first and then your body because there's lots of bacteria and things in your hair and that it's better. Isn't that interesting? It's logical to do so from the top to the bottom. Well, the soap drips down. So. Interesting. So that's what they taught us, right? That's what they said. But I'm not suggesting the reason. The idea that mitzvahs have so many details, the person, I promise you this is true. In my experience, and it's anecdotal, but every time that somebody has asked me the question, why does it really matter, any of the details of the mitzvah, I have discovered that if you just ask that person straight out, do you battle very hard to have good self-esteem? They answer yes. Now, the truth is almost anyone you ask with that question, right? So it's a hard one, self-esteem. But the idea that if you don't think you're that important, then your actions don't really matter. So one way to help somebody understand how important they are is to let them know how much their actions matter and the little things they do and the little things they say. And So the little mitzvahs you do, if you put your tefillin on the wrong way or this way or that way, right, this is important. Who cares? If it's not exactly in the right place on the head, right? If it's a little bit off to one side or the other side, you didn't, it was a bracha levatola. 
You made a bracha for the wrong reason. It's a problem. Why? Who cares? Right? Now, we understand with real things, we understand. You, know, you press the wrong button right, on anything in your house. That's right. Exactly right. One letter off, that's exactly right. Yeah. And you can't get where you're going. And then the more important it is, the more serious it is. So if they leave one little thing out when they're launching something to the moon, right, there's fireworks. I mean, it's no longer, right, they're off by a quarter of a millionth of a centimeter, and by the time it gets to the, gets to outer space, right, you've got to really get it right. So, so, so this, is, this is to explain that, like, even the little things that we do are really significant. So he says, you know why Hashem doesn't let us go anywhere near Avodah and imposes strict, strict rules on that. Why does he behave jealously about that? You know why? Because he loves us. The same reason that he made us and cares about our mitzvahs. Why do I, do you think that I'm angry when my child runs in the street? I'm not angry. Why do I tell them that if they step one foot in the street, they're going to be in the biggest trouble of their life? Because I love them. Because this is a disaster if they do that. Because they're risking everything. So Hashem says, very rarely does he say, I will never forgive this behavior. You know when he says that? When it's a disaster. When it's the whole relationship. You see, physically, if you die, that's the end. Spiritually, if you're not connecting, you're not relating to Hashem, but you're living for different things, Elohim, Acherim, then, then, then what is there? What relationship could there be? What, the whole life is about the relationship. I would rather you be sinning and doing all kinds of other things, but know who I am than develop a whole worldview, you understand? Which says, you're not my father, you're not my creator, you're not my king, I don't care. Uh, regarding your question, there was a time that other gods did work. Like, as far as so like, are, today, other powers do work. In other words, if you pick somebody up and you throw him off a building, you can harness the power of gravity yeah. to kill somebody. It's a real power that exists in the world, and you can choose to use that to kill somebody. But there's nothing besides Hashem. All other powers that might exist in the world, even if you can figure out how to connect to them, Right? All are from Hashem. Baal Pa'or has no power at all. Hashem has power. It may be that you can be, you can use other things in the world to achieve ends, right? But there's no power to that thing. So that's Rashi saying. They have nothing. They cannot help you. You call out to them, it's not them helping you. Now, the Gemara says a question. The Gemara of has a question, just to clarify what you're saying. The Gemara says, you and I know, the rabbi says, you and I know that, that there's nothing to idols. So why is it that we see people go to like a faith healer? And that's something they go to like a faith healer of some, and they can't walk. And then the guy puts his hands and they will walk or whatever. Right? They said, we see these sort of things. People go to worship idols and then they're saved. So you know what he says? He says, where the Gemara says towards the end of Avodazar, that Hashem allows there to be free will in the world. If you really want to believe in idols, he'll allow you to. And right before your disease is supposed to be cured anyway, he will put in your heart the challenge to go worship idols. Now you have this free will to decide, no, we ought not to worship idols. But if you choose to go worship them, it will appear that you were cured right at that moment. That's what the Gemara says. Meaning Hashem allows it to appear as if an idol is saving you. But nothing in the whole world has any power except for, except for Hashem. Isn't that something? There's absolute free will. If you, want, if you want to see amazing stories about Hashem, you can go to the Jewish bookstore and buy some books. You want to see the exact number of amazing, beautiful stories about any other religion? Just go to Barnes & Noble Shelves and shelves and shelves that have just as many stories about Christianity, about Islam, about that, the same thing. And they went to the imam or the, the, right? And he gave them blessing. And he knew somehow, how could he have known? So you can switch the word Lubavitcher Rebbe, switch, right? Any, any, any Balmaifis, right? Anybody who performed it, it's all the same, right? So the answer is Hashem allows it to go in any direction. Um, what about, what about, so what about if, if somebody uses the idol, like an Egyptian, and they do their magic and then stuff against Moses and against God. It's trying to say, like, look, we have all this powers too. And they show that they could do something. I mean, they could make these things. Yes. Okay? So they, it's kind of weird. We don't today see that, or at least I don't. You know, but I'm glad. <laughs> but, but there might have been a real power. I do believe there. I'm not suggesting power. that nothing can be accomplished. Yeah. Ever. 
Right. I'm telling you that all power comes from Hashem, and there's no right. other. It's, we believe, we're monotheistic. Allow, did, did he allow other I have no problem understanding that. Most of the commentaries understand that that's how it worked. The Ramam would say all that was sleight of hand. But I have no problem understanding that there was an alternative way that things were working then that we don't see today anymore. I have no problem with that. Hashem could do whatever he wants. Well, Ramam the, would say it was like a magic trick. Like he says that, that, right. It was like David Copperfield. He, did, he didn't believe that it was. He did not believe that there was a literal. But it doesn't, it's, it's completely irrelevant because who cares? You understand? Really, it doesn't matter. Whatever they were doing, it was not from the power of the idol, even if they were misled to believe that. So these are Elohim Acherim. They have false... Now, as we spoke on Shabbos, the challenge of monotheism is such that the moment that you... It's really paradoxical. If you actually want to relate to God, not as a stranger, but like in a deep, meaningful way, you actually have to let go of images. Now, why do we grasp to images? Because we can't stand it without it. You have to let go of images, and you have to let go of... Then why did he give us permission? That's right. Not only that, when the Jewish people crossed the Red Sea, he said, They said, this is God and Anvehu. So let me tell you what that means. means that they could look at God and point as if they could, as, as clearly as you and I might point with our finger at something. That's what Rashi says. Whenever he says, you can literally point at something. Zekeli, this is my God. What am I going to do? The Anvehu. What's Anvehu? What's Naveh? Naveh, a Naveh, is a sanctuary. And a Naveh is also the word for beauty. So it says, right? Naveh Yerushalayim, right? Naveh Tzion. Naveh. What's is Naveh? It related to Navu at all? It's not. It's a different, it's a Vav. Anvehu, says the Unculus, the Evne Le Maktisha. I will build him a temple. Can you imagine? They saw this close relationship with God, and the first thing was, I've got to find some place. Maybe because they knew they couldn't be on that stage. That's something? Right, there's something. You listen to what the Gemara says. The Gemara says, Ve'anvehu. There's a mitzvah called Hidur Mitzvah, which means to make your mitzvah beautiful. You buy an esrog, buy a beautiful esrog. Yeah, you buy a mezuzah, buy the more expensive, the nicer mezuzah a little bit. Right. In other words, do your mitzvahs a beautiful way. Where do we learn that from? Make, I'll make him beautiful. How do you like that? There's a God up there. You know what I got to do? Uh, get some object. I've got to get a lemon and make it look nice. It's so bizarre, but, but they were praised for this. These are the mitzvahs. But it's an esrog is for nature. God made it, really. Yes. You're just choosing the what do I need an esrog for? I have God. What do I need the physical mitzvahs for? I have, right? In other words, there's this fascinating balance between the fact that the response to belief in God is, I want to change the world, I want to improve things, I want to build a temple, I want to... And the fact that it's really dangerous. Right? We mentioned on Shabbos, the Avar Bayam Tzara. Pasuk says in Hosea that as they crossed the Red Sea, a Tzara came along with them. Tzara means a co-wife. When they crossed the Red Sea... The idol of Micha accompanied them. Vilna Gon and Maharal explain that it wasn't a physical idol that accompanied them because that only appeared a couple hundred years later in chapter 17 and 18 of the book of Judges in Shoftim. But the spiritual potential to worship an idol alongside God was like ready with those people. So we mentioned on Shabbos such a cool thing that when the Jews said, Micha Mocha Ba'elim Hashem, who is like you? among other powers, Hashem, mi kamocha ne'edar bakodesh. In the second one, it says mi kamocha. In the first one, mi kamocha, make up your mind. Explain the minchas shai, an important grammarians on, 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 on Tanakh. It explains. Minchat shai. It's published in the Mikros Gedolos on Nach. And it also has on Kodesh. So he says that, um, know this. What would be if it was, the proper way is mi kamocha, with a chaf rafa, a chaf, not a kaf. So if, let's let's read it together. Mi chamocha ba'elim Hashem micha mocha. The word micha could be appended to the word Hashem, and you'll have micha mocha ba'elim Hashem micha. As the Jews are singing the song of the sea, they have to sing it differently because if you change one nuance, you've got God and micha together. Isn't that something? 
They came to the Red Sea. They were camped across from Baal Tzaphon, the Torah says. And the Egyptians were saying, our last and most powerful God is still there. And we're still going to fight them. And the Jews were scared, the, the commentaries say, because they were worried that maybe there is power to these other idols they hadn't seen yet. And Hashem will fight for you and you stay silent. Nothing can oppose Hashem. Sorry, what does Micha mean? Micha is the what name of a person. Um, it's the name of a person. It was the name of an idol that like came later. There's also a prophet, uh, Micah, that's true. Like the book of Micah. Oh, but in this case, it means an Mi, idol. He, in this situation, Mi Chamocha means who is like you. Right, no, I know that. Word. But in other words, Mi, the word Mi Chamocha, after the word God, if you switch it to Mi Chamocha, you could never make the mistake of like slurring the word Micha in. It's a funny interpretation, but so right. Because at that moment, even the Mepharshim say, even saying who is like you, among other gods, is sort of a mistake. There are no other gods. There's no other powers. So what is it? The moment that you let go of all idols, you have another problem. How on earth do I connect to an infinite god? Through Moshe. We're going to go through Moshe. If Moshe's gone, how could we possibly connect? How could we... Uh, an Egel. Yes, there are some people who would use a tzaddik as the same sort of a crutch. It's very important to understand that, that that's not what everybody does and it's not what they're supposed to do. Say something, please. I agree with what you're saying, but uh, perhaps we should not look at the Tanakh through the lens of Maimonides. This, this, this absolute unity of God, you know, I, I personally have no problems with. But it, it, aren't there places in the Psalms where, where Hashem is likened to a king over all the gods? You know, I mean, there, there is a recognition. Of, of other gods, but God is somehow supreme. I would, you know, I think we're going to have to I, talk together afterwards because I'm not, yeah. I feel like your question is very nuanced. Um, it's, it's intended to be, um, yes. And like, I think it would almost take us a little bit off topic. I, I'm, okay. I'm intending to carefully learn the second <coughs> commandment, which God says he will never forgive mistakes about this. Another thing I wanted to mention so, that, that we, you brought up in the beginning, and, and I like your presentation, you know, you talked about, you know, it's not saying, like, I'm the God who created the universe right off the, the cuff. He's saying, he's an experiential God. You see what's happened before you? I'm the cause of that. You know what I mean? In the Western, especially Christian tradition, theologians, philosophers argue too much about either essence or existence. God is a hypothesis. God is absolute beyond our experience, if you will. For us Jews, Hashem is the God of what? He is what he is bringing about, if you will. You know, you know what I'm trying to say. It's, I think so. Because uh, I'm a former atheist myself. I'm a Baltishuva, and my point is, is that one day I got so tired of hearing the likes of Richard Dawkins, Lauren Isley, Carl Sagan. Uh, you know, just the same narrative, <laughs> the, the the same long drawn out can't be a god, blah blah blah. And then I look at the Torah, right? I look at Kamash. I look at the whole Tanakh. And for the first time in my life, I see an organic unity here that I've never found in any other corpus of literature. There seems to be a single mind. And uh, I, I may be getting off the topic here, but it goes back to the dichotomy. You know, you mentioned, uh, you know, you didn't say, you know, I am the God of the universe. He says, I am the God who has called you out of Egypt. And, and that's, that. if I'm making some sense here. Yes, first of all, what you're saying is very beautiful. And I appreciate it. Um, and I'm glad you're here. Thank you. I'm glad um, you're here. I'm honored that you're here. And I also want you to know that I certainly, I certainly have a, a relatively absolute belief um, uh, that about certain things. In other words, I really don't, I don't believe that there's room for me to say, well, child molestation. For me, it's wrong. But like for others, you know, I'll let you live the way you want. Right now, it's for me, it's clear. And I'm comfortable saying every child molester is doing a terrible thing. I'm also comfortable saying that we may not always judge every one of those people. I don't know what their childhood was. I don't know who they are. I don't know their mental health state. And therefore, I wouldn't be able to say every one of them is necessarily evil. But I could, I can, I can, mm. therefore, I'm comfortable to take a pretty solid approach that rules out any other gods other than Hashem as being real and everything being right. somewhat of an illusion um, and at the same time deeply and sincerely working hard as an objective in my life to love people who make those mistakes and to respect them as people 
and not to, do you understand what I'm saying? So the black and whiteness, the black, so the black and whiteness stays within the realm of, of it doesn't enter, it doesn't enter anything practical or social for me for the most part, um, in terms of judging another person. I believe there's really fine people out there who see the world very differently than I do, and really repulsive and disgusting people who see the world just as I do, um, because there's a lot more nuance um, to these things. However, however. Um, I think that if we're going to get any further together, we probably have to discuss this. Um, One of the things that made Korah's rebellion, for instance, so heinous, so insi- so insidious, was the fact that they were witness to what was unfolding. Do you do you see yes. what I'm trying to say here? There, and and I'll shut up after this. But you know, <laughs> I want to tie this into an old rabbinic that I read about. You know, rabbinic uh, teaching that the generation that's closer to the Mosaic Covenant is closer to the truth, especially those people who went through it. Um, basically, that's all I'm going to say at this Beautiful. point. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Well, what Yoshi said is something that's worth worth just clarifying. I don't want to, God forbid, say anything bad about Kedoshe Elion, about Rebbe Zedat Sadiqim. It's not, they, I don't believe that they themselves are making big mistakes. But like, for example, I do believe that if there's somebody who thinks Honestly, I think that for somebody who really thinks they have a much better shot of getting into heaven if they go to a specific grave, I think it's such a mistake. I think that you cannot think that Judaism has something to do with the clothes you wear. Mm. There can be lots of good reasons. When I'm in a yeshiva, when I'm in a community, I'm very proud now to wear a black hat and identify with the yeshivas that I studied in and the rabbis who I consider great and to dress like them. It makes me very happy. But if there's somebody out there who thinks that you're a better or worse person based upon the color of your hat, so I think that that person is so beyond missing the point of Judaism. Now, the truth is there's always going to be a percentage of people who miss the point of any system. And, like, that's to be expected. They can still, like I said before, they can still be fabulous people. They can be kind and generous, but don't ask them for any theological advice. So this is a very crucial thing. We have this desire to latch on to, like, what does it look like? And it's such a mistake because nothing nothing real, um, nothing real can be seen. Instead, you can't see love, you can't see Hashem, you can't see angels. If you can see it, it's not real. Physical is an illusion. It's, I mean, it's something. It's something, but it's not. It's not real. It's not forever. Okay. So now, what happens is amazing. You see, the, you're, so you're trying to insert that the real things are not the. Physical. I see the most real things you can't see. Friendship. The most real things you can't you can't you see. One that's person right. be kind to another. That's right. Like that. But is he really right? Like, what's really important is the soul behind that gift, right? And the feeling behind that gift. The most important thing in the whole world, Rachmana Liba boy. What God wants is your heart, and that you can't see. Yeah, so this is a very, very important principle in, in understanding. So now what happens? They want to build a temple. They want to build it. Symbols, we said, are most valuable to us when they directly say by that symbol that there is no me. So Moshe, who's the greatest Rebbe ever, Moshe Rabbeinu, every, every Rebbe and every Tzaddik in the world should be imitating Moshe. What is Moshe doing? He's the humblest of all people. And he doesn't he when he talks, he talks God's words. And he's humble. And he speaks the word of God. He doesn't speak his own stuff. He don't have any, even when even when Moshe speaks, it's Torah because it's that's who he is. He became totally. Now, what was Moshe's greatest action? His very greatest action ever. So I have one way to find out. Want to hear this? So I'll tell you what Rashi thinks. What? Yeah, let's. let's uh, does anyone want to say in a, in a few words? Arguing with God. Oh, there we go. Okay, you say when he broke the tablets. You said. So right, the last Rashi in Chumash says what Yosef just said. I would never have thought this in a million years. I don't know if you peeked at that Rashi. When he said you could erase. It was right after that. Oh, race the whole me from existence. From existence. I don't even exist in Torah. Okay, so that's a very powerful answer that you just gave. Because it says, you know, it says... Okay, maybe we'll get back to that. I don't want to get too distracted. They're very connected. Moshe smashing the luchos is an amazing, amazing experience. That was an action. It says in the Torah. It says in the Torah. That the action that Moshe did, le'enei kol Yisrael. So you may be right. The greatest public display that Moshe ever made, because that prayer for the Jewish people was a private matter. 
right? So you may be right about that. The pray, but, but smashing the tablets. When he came down and saw people dancing around the Egel, so he took the tablets and smashed them. And Rashi says, that was Shenisao Libo. His heart lifted him up to have the audacity and courage to smash the Lukos. What's a God written by his own Can you imagine? That's right. Moshe did it on his own. And then and then God said, Asher Shibarta, that you broke. The Gemara says, like I said, Yasher Kochacha Shibarta. Good job, buddy. Good job. Yeah, like a third base coach after a Grand Slam win in the World Series. Good job, buddy. A little pat on the back. Side. You understand? Hashem says, Yashikala, good job. Why is that the greatest thing? So let's find out what happened there. You know, Moshe Rabbeinu is the man who connects us to God. And you know what happens when we don't have Moshe? We think I was connecting through Moshe. So now I'm disconnected. So what do we do? We go build something else to connect us. When Moshe sees them dancing around that, he takes the luchos themselves and smashes them and says, you need nothing. You don't need luchos. You don't need images. You don't need anything. And that's the greatest gift you could possibly give mankind, to know that you are not far from God. You are so connected to him. You're in the image of God. You're the best possible reflection. You don't need anything to connect to Hashem. And if you can just be quiet for a minute and stop with the images, you'll find Hashem. So what is a Beis HaMektash? It's a place where you can just be. Beis HaBechira. It's a place where you can just be. You can just be yourself. You understand? You can just be and be connected to Hashem. It's that ladder. That's where Yaakov was. It's the gateway to heaven. In other words, any symbol that tells you you need this symbol is a big, big, big mistake. You don't need that symbol. Even the chariot imagery in some Jewish mysticism. Correct. That's right, the Merkava. Every, every, yes. In other words, every symbol that we have is a sophisticated intellectual idea. And a mitzvah that you do, the word mitzvah, the Kabbalah Svarim say, that the word savsa in Aramaic means relationship. The tsevet is the crew on the airplane. Right? Tzavsa is fellowship and friendship. A mitzvah is something that makes you a friend and a connected one to someone else. So what mitzvah does, what those physical items do, is allow you to connect to Hashem. Any person who gets too obsessed with their wedding ring is a problem. You can't get in a fight with your wife about her engagement ring. What are you, nuts? The whole purpose of this is to bring you together. Don't get in a fight about where, how could you lose your ring. You understand? It's a mistake. You start to worship the ring. There was a group of Jews who used it to do this. That's right. You're exactly right. You're exactly right. The you know, there is a group of people that were called the Shomronim, or the Kusim. Yeah, they were the Samaritans. They were the bad Samaritans. They were not nice to the Jews. Um, luckily, as soon as people came saying, "Where are the Jews? We want to kill all of them," they said, "Who us? We're Samaritans." So that saved us from having them still Some today. The um, well, they're still around. They live on Hargrizim, and you can go visit them. The thing is that they didn't define Judaism, even had their conversions been real, they may have been, but they defined Judaism by the father. So they intermarried, they married mostly Arabs because the Jews wouldn't marry them. And so they still live there, and they keep, you know, they write a mezuzah over the door in Ksav Ivri, in ancient Hebrew script, and they put it on it. I went to visit. It's really cool. And they, have an, oh, they had a Beit HaMikdash. So the Gemara says, it turned out they were really worshipping idols. Um, because they found the image of dove's wings at their base of Mikdash. Kanfeyona. They, were, they, had a, they had like an image that they used to worship. Dove's wings. Dove's wings. What is the significance? So I'll tell you something. The Gemara tells us one other amazing fact about the Kusim, <coughs> the Shemona, and it's true to today. You can go today to Mount Grizim before Pesach. They do a Korban Pesach like it says in the Rambam. I have a friend who went, took pictures. Yeah, they do the Korban I mean, so the Gemara says, Mitzvos shehechziku bahem kusim. The mitzvahs that the kusim latched onto, they keep them yoser me Yisrael. They're medaktik in bahem. They're more detail-oriented than the Jews. So they don't keep all the mitzvahs, but those that they do, they never mess up with. We mess around. We add minhagim, well, this way, that way. Come into a show, watch people do any mitzvahs. Shake a lulav. One guy's turning his whole body. The other guy's not. Everyone's doing different, right? We have all different things. We weren't as careful as them. Um, that was their special thing. So what are they calling him? The Kusim, they were from, what happened is Sancheruv had this amazing thing where he took people from other nations and he would take the indigenous population and move them somewhere else so that because he knew that people have a relationship with the land. And so they're not going to rebel if they're already in a new place. So he took these people from the Isle of Kus, 
Kuthia, and he brought them to the Shomron in Israel, and they were called the Shomron and the Samaritans, Samaria. Um, in, that, Sorry, is that the cut? So I'm, I'm reading a mission. Is that the Kutians, the, the same? People? The Kuthians, yeah, Kuthians, the Kuthians, okay. yeah, that's them, right? So they could they show up? They were like these real. Uh, they were real troublemakers. So in any event, listen to this. What does it mean that they worshipped doves' wings? The Gemara says that the mitzvahs are compared to the wings of doves for the Jewish people. My Yona, it's a song from Lev Tahor. My Yona, Eina Nitzoles Ella Bichnafeha. Just like a, a, a dove is saved by its wings. Flies away. It's the hasn't going to get away from the predator. Af Yisrael. So are the Jews. Einon nitzolin ela b'mitzvah. The Jewish people are only saved through mitzvah observance. That's what elevates us. That's what keeps us around. We're still here today because of our faithful <coughs> consistency with mitzvahs. Our so mitzvahs here's what happens when you worship the mitzvahs. The okay. Samaritans worship the mitzvahs. I'll tell you. Uh, uh, you know, one time, one of the first Shabbos is in our shul over here, a couple, two and a half years ago. Um, it was Friday night. I knew 10 people were coming. It was a brand new shul. No one knew about the shul. One guy on the way to shul, he passes by me coming out of his house. His wife had a heart attack. He's going to the hospital. He's not going to make it. Okay. So, you know, you can't be upset about that. So I walk around the streets. I'm looking for somebody. Nobody. So we down with, with nine guys. Come on, Shabbos, Meyer, have we done with it? So I spoke. For five minutes of davening, so I told him the following story. You know, the Gemara says that if a person tries to do a mitzvah the best he can, and ne'enas, like something happened and he couldn't do it, so he gets full credit, right? He gets schar ke'ilu asa. So the question is, why would God do that? He's infinite. He could just send another person in. Why would he make it that you can't? If you try, it should always work. Okay, cute question. So, sorry. Uh, so, so I wanted to suggest like this. I wanted to suggest like this. That that's really a possibility. You know, sometimes the longing, the longing that one might have when you couldn't do it, can be more productive. So listen to this. There's a story of Reb Zisha and Reb Elimelech, and with this we'll finish. Reb Elimelech and Zisha were brothers, and since this is a Hasidic story, it starts at an inn, right? They were at an inn, um, and they left the next morning, and everybody at the inn travels together, and um, towards the next town. Suddenly the police show up, and sure enough, they catch one of the people, one of the ten travelers, with all the silverware and candlesticks from the inn. So they put everyone in prison until they can sort out who is together and who's not. You know, it's no simple thing. So they're all sitting in this, like, makeshift jail, and there's a bowl in the middle, like a big bucket in the middle of the room, that is a latrine for everybody there, and it stinks, and it's time for mincha. A toilet, and it smells, it's time for mincha. And they can't daven because they're too close to this and it stinks. You're not allowed to pray. So Rebbe Elimelech is sad. He's visibly sad. I can't daven mincha. He loves to pray. So Rebbe Zisha says to him, why are you sad? He says, because of this. He says, I don't understand. Why do you ever pray? Because God said to pray. The same God who told you to pray is now telling you don't pray. He put you in this place. <laughs> He's telling you not to pray. So they got so excited. They said, you pray with joy, right? So then let's not pray with joy. They got so excited about this idea, they started dancing and singing. So then the guy comes by. So the guy comes by, the guard. Yeah, and he says, what kind of are these two Jews? You know, what are these two, you know, filthy Jews dancing about? So the other guy says, I don't know. They were talking in the Yiddish, but... But well, they started pointing at this lavatory over here, this toilet, and they got so excited. You know, they started dancing. So he says, oh, yeah? So he goes, he takes the toilet, takes it out of the room all the way down the hall, and says, ha, huh, I'll show them. So they shrug their shoulders and daven mincha. <laughs> so it's a fabulous story, right? So what's the lesson? The lesson is you could, you could begin worshiping the mitzvah. You could forget that the reason you pray is not because you like to pray, or because you've got to pray. You know the guy who will knock over 10 people in order to go kiss the Torah or something? Rabbi Sosalanti used to say, the guy violated like all these Torah prohibitions, right? In order, in order to do a minug, right? How dare you dress immodestly? And the guy's humiliating a woman on a bus. He stepped on eight guys' toes. He said, what, what's going on here? How could you behave like this? The answer is because you get tunnel vision. You start to worship the mitzvah instead of Hashem. How is that Kanfei Yona again? Kanfei Yona, Kanfei are the mitzvahs. They worshipped mitzvahs, so ah. they kept them right, but they weren't worshipping God. We worship Hashem, which means that if you're standing in a place where you can't do the mitzvah, you smile with the same joy and say, well, Hashem, that's fine too. If you want me married, I'm married. If you want me single, I'm single. I'm just going to try my best. And without attaching any specific form, mm. including mitzvahs. So Hashem says, sometimes you're going to try to do a mitzvah, and I'm going to say, that's not for today. Because what you're supposed to be worshipping is me, not the mitzvah. You'll get credit for the mitzvah because you're supposed to try, but that's worshipping me too. You get the same credit. 
How could you get the same credit? Because the credit was never for the physical act. It was for the connection to Hashem that comes from those behaviors. We need to let go of symbols as much as we can. And we need to know that Hashem being jealous and upset and after us, the Gemara says, finally, if you had two sick people, it's a Medrash Tanchuma, rather, it says, and then Rashi brings it, if you had two sick people, and they come to the doctor, so the doctor says, I have a diet for the one guy, he gives a very strict diet, and he tells him to eat this, the other guy comes in and says, you can eat whatever you want, because I'm so much luckier than you. So the doctor says, between you and me, he's not luckier than you, he just has a week left to live. And I tell him <laughs> what to eat, you have a chance of really making it. So Rashi and Chumash says, that's why Hashem was so important for the Jewish people to keep kosher. He says, because when you're living a life where you're really focused on your soul, so then what you eat can be very important. When you're not living such a life, so whatever, whatever's going to happen to your soul, you know, you c- it's not going to make such a big impact anyway at this stage. And that's what he says. So if they're comparing like the idolater to the Torah observant person. So we have to know that Hashem is, is engaged in the details of our life and in all these things because he's crazy about us and he loves us. That's where you find the relationship. That's where you find the behavior. You know, we are tempted to come to a shir like this and think this is where you're going to find it because it's it's going to be inspiration and you're going to hear this and that and boy, that's where I'm going to find Hashem. And it's not really the case. It can inspire you ideally. A good Torah learning, right? A good shear to find Hashem. But where you actually find Hashem is when you do things yourself, when you do the mitzvahs, when you engage, but you're not doing them to do the mitzvah. You're doing them because when you do the mitzvah, you then connect to Hashem. You shall have no other gods before me at all. Period. Nothing. Ever. Only Hashem. And that is the most glorious and deeply connecting thing, counterintuitively. No micha, nobody else. Yeah, it's re- we're always really close to that. We're always uh, dancing around that. The difference between a temple, that's okay, and the temple on Hargrizim is very nuanced, right? Between the Kruvim and the Kanfayona. But ultimately they're, ultimately, they're worlds apart. And that dance is what we're doing every day. Thank you, everyone, for being here. I'll be thrilled.